Come gather round the campfire and hear our ghostly tales of chilling terrors, darkest woes, and anything that goes bump in the night. So cuddle up with your best friend or dare it alone. The darkness is closing in and spirits are calling your name. This is Fireside Phantoms. Tonight, Carol, I'm going to bedazzle you with stories about mummies. Ooh. They're pretty, uh, pretty fascinating, actually. Um, and I actually found some kind of bizarre, interesting stories. First thing I wanted to really find out about mummies was um, how exactly are mummies made? I turned to my good friend, the internet, and I started looking around. Uh, and this is what I found out. Uh, starting around 2600 BC and for about 2000 years, the early Egyptians practiced the process of mummification. Some Egyptian priests were trained in embalming, anatomy, and special rituals that are performed when a body is mummified. Yay. These priests became the ones responsible for the mummification process. To begin the process, you have to get rid of all the parts of the body that will decompose and can cause the rest of the body to break down quickly. So they took out the internal organs, uh, including the intestines, the stomach, the lungs, and the liver, and they would place them into special jars called canopic jars. Um, th these jars are made of materials like limestone or calcite, and the jar lids would have an animal or a human head on them. Um, these jars would later be buried with the mummy in the tomb. Then the priests would remove the brain by using a hook-like device and shoving it up the nose of the person and pulling the brain tissue out one piece at a time. <laughs> I, th I heard this uh, thing that they, the Egyptians thought the brain was useless. Yeah. So yeah. It was and not I'm, needed in the afterlife at all. <laughs> yes. Isn't that funny? And I'm going to get to what they did think was important here. So I'm, I'm glad that you added that little bit of trivia because it's oh, true. Oh, you're welcome. Yes. It's great. They had to be very careful when they were removing the brain through the nose because they could disfigure the face of the mummy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So gross. One thing that the priests did leave inside the body was the heart, as they believed that the being or spirit of the person resided there and it was their job to keep it protected. They also believed the intelligence of the person was in the heart. So just nice. like you said, the brain doesn't do anything. We just want the heart, which is kind of beautiful, really, because the Egyptians used to think that the heart was the real intelligence center, which is kind of cool if you think about it, that they were really <laughs> driven by their emotions. So after that part of the process was complete, the priest would then dry the body out so that all the fluids were gone. To achieve this, they placed the body in salt. Once the body was quote-unquote dry, they washed the salt from the body and filled in the caved-in or deflated parts with linens or other materials to make it appear still three-dimensional. So they were basically making human jerky. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Kind of gross, but yes. <laughs> delicious, cool. delicious human jerky. Okay. And salty. They added false eyes to the mummies. And after that, they would wrap the body in long strips, typically of linen. They would need hundreds of yards to wrap a mummy completely. They would place amulets on the body for protection, and they would write prayers on the linen strips. They would 
place a mask or a painting of the person's face on the head and wrap the linen around that as well. They would coat each layer with resin and oil and repeat the process over and over again. They could add as many as 35 layers of wrappings to one mummy. So that's a heavily held in place mummy. In fact, I think the body was probably more better held together after it was mummified than before when it was actually a living, breathing person. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That's pretty strong. Yeah. As the mummy was being prepared, its tomb was also being prepared. They would place furniture, statues, paintings, written prayers in the tomb, believing this mummy would need these items in the spiritual realm. Once the mummy and the tomb were ready, they would perform the funeral. During the funeral, the priest would conduct a ceremony called opening of the mouth, which meant that the priest would touch the mummy in a certain place in order to activate that part of the mummy for his life in the afterlife. So, for example, when the priest would touch the mummy's mouth, it could speak and eat in the afterlife. The mummy was then placed in his or her coffin and the entrance to the tomb was sealed. The Egyptians practiced mummification because they believed the body was a place that the soul or spirit lives even after death. So if the body was destroyed, the spirit would have no home. He would have nowhere to go. He'd have to wander around. The Egyptians believed that there are three spirits for each person. Ka was a part of the spirit that stayed in the tomb. Ka was who enjoyed the offerings that were left for him. Ba was the part of the spirit that could leave the tomb and venture around. So kind of like the ghost part that can go haunt people. And then Ak was the part of the person that would face judgment in the underworld and seek the afterlife. That would suck to be Ak. <laughs> but wait, if he passes through judgment, he gets to go to heaven. It might be really cool to be Ak. It's all or nothing, man. You got to be super confident to be Ak. You really do. I mean, that's probably the the ballsy part of the spirit. It's probably the dick and balls that like floats around mm-hmm. would, be, would be my guess. Because the mummification process was so detailed and took so long, 70 days generally, it was also very expensive. So they only really mummified people who were of nobility or were special in some way or could afford it. They even mummified some animals if they had some religious significance. And didn't they, Holly, when like the Pharaoh would die, bury all his servants with them alive in oh, his God. tomb? Oh, I don't know. I didn't read that part, but maybe okay, I don't maybe know. That was just, maybe that was just a nightmare I had. You know, sometimes I, I confuse history with nightmares I have. So. so some interesting mummy stories include the following. Um, there was a mummy of a guy named Dashi Dorzo Litiglov. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly or not. He was a monk and he died in 1927 and he died during his meditation practice and he was actually buried in the upright seated position. His body was exhumed several years later and he was still well preserved and still sitting in the lotus position. They then reinterred his coffin and put it in salt and again his body was exhumed much later and was once again found to be hardly decayed at all and in fact when they analyzed his skin and hair it looked as if he died 36 hours before instead of 100 years before. Wow. I wonder if it was just because he was in the state of meditation or if it was yeah. just a really good mummy job. I know that when he was um, going to die, he had said to his fellow monks and the people in his class, he said, I'm going to die. Would you care to join me in meditation? And they were like, okay. And so that's when he died was during his meditation and he knew he was going to die. It's wow. kind of cool though, right? That's super cool. 
it is cool. Okay, here's a, here's a freaky mummy story, and it's freaky because it's true, and it's freaky because this happens, and it's freaky because it's not really a mummy story, but it kind of is. <laughs> yeah. But it's still very, very, very strange. Okay, there is a woman named Zahara Abutalib, and in 1955, she found out she was pregnant, and she went to the hospital to deliver her baby. However, she was having trouble delivering the baby naturally, so her doctor wanted to give her a C-section, but that freaked her out. So she declined, and she left the hospital. Eventually, the baby died in her womb, and she decided not to have it taken out. What? <laughs> yeah. Okay, yes. I'm sorry. Um, did you say she wants a dead baby inside of herself? She just does not want to face the fact that I guess that she's carrying a dead baby around in her body. So get this. 46 years go by. No. Yes. No. Yes. Yes. 46 years later, and she starts to get some pretty intense stomach pain. So she goes back to the hospital and the doctors give her an x-ray and they find a massive growth or tumor in her stomach. As it turns out, the dead baby that had remained inside of her for 46 years had grown into a full human being and was trying to order Starbucks by yanking on the umbilical cord. <laughs> no, no, that's not what happened, actually. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. No, what actually happened was it turns out that the remains of her dead baby had become calcified. This is a rare occurrence, but it does happen. And in fact, only 300 cases have ever been recorded. Her baby was stoned. Yeah, it's actually called lithopedian. And the body was unable to get rid of the fetus, so to protect itself from infection that could occur as the fetus decomposed, it put a layer of calcification around it, which created a mummy-like effect around the fetus. That's amazing. That's Our bodies are so powerful. I just can't imagine how this woman, essentially, I guess she's nine months pregnant. Always. Yeah. How fucked up is that? <laughs> So here's another really cool story. This is the story of Eva Perón, who was married to the Argentinian president Juan Perón from 1946 to 1955. She was a spiritual leader and the first lady of Argentina and deeply beloved in that country. Unfortunately, she died of cancer when she was only 33 years old. When she died, the country went into a great state of mourning. And because of the grief, they wanted to display the body to the public, so they embalmed her body to preserve it for public viewing. However, her husband was overthrown from power not long after, and Ava's body disappeared. She was not returned to him for almost 15 years. Once her corpse was finally returned to her husband, it had received postmortem injuries, such as blunt force trauma to her face and feet, and she was missing a finger. So, yeah, she got... That was when she said you for dropping me <laughs> however because she was so well preserved Juan Perón and his new wife Isabel kept her body in their home they Ew. even they even propped her up at the kitchen table sometimes or kept her in their dining room what and his <clears throat> his new wife was okay yes. with a mummified ex-wife the, in the new house? wife was obsessed with her and in fact she said or what I read was the weirdest part was that Isabel would comb Avita's hair every day and even crawl into her coffin to lie beside her. She wanted to somehow receive some of Avita's magic, you know, because she was so beloved, and thought lying next to her dead body would help her to get it. 
And it must have worked too because Isabel became vice president to her husband when he was brought back into power. And when he passed away, she became the first female president in the Western Hemisphere. Go girl. That is messed up though. You lay in that coffin, baby. Do it. Well, yeah, we're- you're going to start a trend of coffin <laughs> snuggling. <laughs> Then, of course, I have to end my story on mummies with the most famous mummy of all, King Tut. King Tut was actually just a boy when he took over as the Egyptian ruler. He ruled from 1325 to 1334. He was about eight or nine years old when he took over, so he was just a kid. He took his half-sister, looks like it's spelled like Oksana Moon, and because Oksana Moon was the character in the mummy, I'm going to just call her Oksana Moon. So cool. just go with me on this. So I like t- it. Thank you. He took his half-sister, Oksana Moon, as his wife. They had conceived two daughters, but neither one survived. It is also believed that King Tut had some deformities in his feet, and he needed to use a cane. He was also said to suffer from scoliosis and malaria. It was determined that his death was probably a combination of factors, including a broken leg, his malarial infections, and his many, many, many health disorders. And in fact, they believed his parents maybe were full brother-sister or first cousins. So he had a lot of genetic issues. Yikes. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of health issues. He was only about 19 or so when he died. So, of course, we all know that the mummies are typically associated with curses. However, in actuality, mummy curses are actually quite rare. They are usually discovered in private tombs and may say something like, Cursed be those who disturb the rest of a pharaoh. They that shall break the seal of this tomb shall meet death by a disease that no doctor can diagnose. It is believed that the tomb of King Tut was cursed, as there were some interesting and unusual deaths connected to it once it was open. So here are just a couple of the deaths that happened. The fifth Earl of Carnarvon, George Herbert, was the financier of the King Tut excavation. Lord Carnarvon had been bitten by a mosquito, and while he was shaving, he accidentally gouged it open. The wound became infected, and he died of blood poisoning soon after. Oh, God. So this started to sweep up a fever pitch about the curse of King Tut, because he died a few months after the tomb had been opened, and the press was already talking about a mummy curse. It is also said that when he died, all the lights in his house went out, and nobody knows why. They also said that there was a lesion on the left cheek of King Tut when he was autopsied, but they're unsure if it was on the same cheek as Lord Carnarvon. And why would they think it would be in the same place? Like, why why is that theory? They're looking for any way to connect it to the curse of King Tut. So if he died of a cut open on his cheek and they find one on King Tut's cheek, maybe there's a correlation there. I think that's all that they're doing. So the next one is Sir Bruce Ingham. Uh, When the tomb was discovered, it was opened by a man named Howard Carter. Carter gave a paperweight to his friend Sir Bruce Ingham as a gift. And soon after this gift exchange, Ingham's house burned to the ground. And when he tried to rebuild his house, it was destroyed by a flood. So what does a paperweight have to do with this guy's house burning down and getting flooded, you ask? Yeah, why would a paperweight have anything to do with that, Holly? Well, it turns out, thank you, Carol, for asking. It turns out that the paperweight that Carter had given him was of a mummified hand wearing a bracelet that says, Curse be he who moves my body. To him shall come fire, water, and pestilence. Pestilence. (laughs) Pestilence. (laughs) This next one um, is actually pretty cool. And if 
if there was a curse, I would imagine that it would have gone down something like this. And I couldn't quite tell if this happened to this guy named James Henry Breasted or if it actually happened to Howard Carter himself. But um, James Henry Breasted was another Egyptologist, and he worked with Howard Carter. Um, the very day that Carter was going into King Tut's tomb, Breasted returned home to find a cobra had just slinked into his canary's cage and eaten the canary. Oh, it my was, God. It was still sitting in the cage when he got home. How sad. He actually did not die, though, until 1935, but he did die immediately after returning from a trip to Egypt. So I couldn't quite tell if that actually happened at James Breasted's house or if it happened at Howard, Carter, Howard Carter's house. I'm not quite sure. So last but not least is Howard Carter. He had been the one to find King Tut's tomb, and he opened it in 1922. He actually didn't die in under any kind of strange circumstances, but he did die of lymphoma when he was 64. But one of the things that he mentioned that I thought was kind of interesting was in May of 1926, he wrote in his diary that he saw jackals for the first time in his 35 years of work out in the desert, and jackals are known to be guardians of the dead. So I think that was kind of interesting. There are many more weird stories associated with King Tut's tomb, but those are just a few of the really good ones. And they are very good, Holly. Thank you. I don't really think there was a curse. I, I think that there just happened to be a lot of people involved with that um, excavation, and it happened to have a lot of them die under kind of unusual circumstances. And so, of course, you know, the media wants it to be a curse. And so they're going to like try to connect all those dots. But ultimately, I think it was just a lot of people that died in interesting ways that had a connection to King Tut's tomb. Hello, the world. We are They Will Kill, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney Eck. And I'm Sadie Eck. And we are sisters that want to tell you about lesser known murders. Our cases are always compelling, maybe even a little scary, with just enough banter to keep it interesting. You can find us at theywillkill.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you there. See ya. Every summer growing up, my family, we would take a vacation to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Okay, cool. And why there? Well, it just was a great beach. And there's this carnival across from our hotel that kept us kids entertained quite a bit. And there was all kinds of unique boutiques. And my favorite place to hang out, Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, oh, was just that, down the street. They used to have one of those in Lincoln City, but I think it closed down. Well, that's too bad. Yeah. Those were so cool. But yeah. Um, yeah. one of these boutiques would sell these grab bags. You remember those as a kid and, and they sure. would set various prices on them. Yes. And I loved getting a bag each day. And, you know, they were usually filled with cool, cool toys, candy inside. But sometimes I'd get um, some amazing things. Like one time I got, I remember a crystal geode and like an ivory set of dominoes. I What's also a crystal got, geode? What is that? Uh, rabbit's foot. It's one of those oh. like uh, round rocks that when you cut it open, there's crystals inside. Oh, like amethyst crystals yeah. or quartz crystals. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And somebody had already done that with it, but half of it was in the bag. So it was already like showing all the crystal parts and it was really magical. Cool. Um, but anyway, so I got all nostalgic when I've been hearing about a fad 
where a lot of people are buying these so-called mystery boxes online. And then what they're doing is they're, they're having fun filming the opening of them so everyone can see what's inside. Uh -huh. But unlike the mystery bags for kids, some have reported accidentally ordering from shady places and ending up with some pretty scandalous stuff like rusty tools with hair stuck to it, <laughs> which might make you think of murder weapons, <laughs> along with some valuable items that kind of seem stolen, like iPads, jewelry boxes with high value rings. And then some of these mystery boxes actually have weird photos of people or random keys. One person even reported getting bags of prescription meds in their box. So, what? And if that weren't strange enough, some of these boxes come with an extra special fun surprise in them known as Dybbuk's. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. So supposedly a Dybbuk, for those of you that don't know, it's a desperate spirit. And the word stems from an old Yiddish term meaning attachment or to cling. And according to old Jewish texts, this was a spirit attached to part of a deceased person who had unfinished business and needed to inhabit or possess another host in order to finish its mission. So it's kind of like your um, mummy story where, you know, the soul is divided into three parts. Right. Well, this part of the soul, um, the Dybbuk, is needing to still finish out its part before it can be joined in the afterlife with the others. Oh, interesting. Speaking of Yiddish, guess what famous book just got translated in February of this year to Yiddish? That Samdan Rushni book. What was it? Um that he wrote, that he, everybody was trying to kill him. Satanic verses? Yeah, that one. That would be good. But no, it's Harry Potter. Oh. And all <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's Harry Potter. I How did I not know that? <laughs> and all copies sold out within 48 minutes of being available. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so now back to the story. There are various <laughs> opinions that these spirits were the evil souls of humans who died, and they're very difficult to get rid of, hence the meaning cling to cling. And most agree that even though the Dybbuk's are not demons, they do seek harm to the host or whatever living being it is attached to. And so are they like, they're like tapeworms? <laughs> That's a really good um, analogy. Well, I love you. it. <laughs> yeah. In researching this further, though, these Dybbuk's are trapped using an elaborate ritual. So Objects belonging to the deceased are placed into a wine cabinet or wooden box in order to lure the Dybbuk and then sealed with wax all around the cabinet to ensure they cannot escape. The huh. person who opens it invites this dangerous entity to attach itself to them and it can cause all kinds of misfortune. It kind of reminds me of the little genie in the bottle story, but instead of the three wishes, you get many torments. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> The story of Dybbuk's have been around for ages, but the boxes seem to be a more recent thing. According to Rabbi Gershon Winkler, he has written a book called Dybbuk and has chronicled all kinds of stories regarding possessions and famous Jewish exorcisms regarding these spirits. Recently, an especially sinister Dybbuk box has drawn the attention of many people and originated with a woman named Havala. She was a Holocaust survivor and had traveled from Poland to Spain purchasing the box before then coming to America. Eventually, the wine cabinet was purchased in 2001 at an estate sale by an antique and furniture shop owner, Kevin Manis. And guess where his shop is located, Holly? I think I might know. 
Where is it? Portland, Oregon. Yes. You win the prize. (laughs) And because of all the phenomenon surrounding this particular antique wine box, he did some research and located the original family it belonged to, offering to give it back to Havilah's granddaughter. She told Manis that the family didn't want this antique wine box back because it had a Dybbuk living inside it. So she yeah, knew- why would she want it back? Yeah, and she said for years, you know, her grandmother had always stored it in her knitting room and they didn't dare disturb it. So she did not want it back. And Manis said when he opened the box, he found this little small gold wine goblet, an octopus-shaped candle holder with tentacle legs, a dried rose, two pennies dated from the 1920s, and two locks of hair, one blonde and one brown, tied up with cords. There was also a small little statuette engraved with the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. And Manus said he thought all of these little things in the wine cabinet was so nice, he wanted to give it to his mother for a present on her birthday. Do we know why that stuff was in there? Were they little tokens for the, the Dybbuk? Is that what it was? Yeah, that's uh, to lure the Dybbuk in. They uh, have to have these objects to trap the Dybbuk because they're attached to the life of the person. So it, it lures them in thinking the, the person is still there. Oh, so they the lock of hair and that type of stuff and those little objects belong to the person that the Dybbuk was originally attached to. That's the theory. Nobody has okay. really said for sure, but that's my theory because um, if you really think about what a Dybbuk does, it attaches itself to the person's soul trying to finish up the business that it has and you know, that's the way they have of luring it into this box is by making it think its owner is there. Manis said he thought his own mother suffered a stroke on her birthday when he gave her the box as a present. Oh, man. That's such a nice son. <laughs> Giving your mother a haunted wine box. He'd been having bad dreams, but he didn't associate with the wine box until his mother reacted so strongly to his gift. He claims the FBI even raided his shop afterwards and started taking his merchandise to investigate what might have happened to his mom, but eventually gave back his stuff. And by the way, the Portland FBI had no comments on verifying this information. The box has made its way around to several other owners after he auctioned it off on eBay. And there are those who have claimed everything from smelling cat urine and get this jasmine flowers. Quite the difference. Electrical issues with lights, nightmares, and a more severe effect like coughing up blood, full body hives, and losing hair. And one of the owners, Jason Haxton of Kirksville, Missouri, decided to call in rabbis who were familiar with Dybbuk and see if they could help seal the box and trap the spirit back inside. So after being told the rabbis were successful in their ritual, he said it was buried in an unknown location. And of course, this just sent the internet into a complete frenzy with all these ghosts and treasure hunters discussing for a time on where and how to try and find it. Yeah. Eventually, though, the most famous ghost hunter of them all, Zach Bagans of Ghost Adventures, was able to get the ominous Dybbuk box donated to him for display in his museum. But the story gets even weirder, Holly. The rap singer Post Malone was invited by Zach to see the haunted item in his museum as part of a private tour. Supposedly, Post didn't realize how dangerous this box was. So after Zach removed the plexiglass protecting it, he reached out to try and touch it. Zach stopped him, but ever since, 
he has been reporting horrible things happening to him. Oh, really? He believes the item cursed him. First of all, his private plane had to make an emergency landing due to all four tires blowing apart. Oh, shit. Not just one, four tires. How did, like, so how did they land with no tires? They did. They somehow managed. Wow. That's yeah, scary. They managed to make it down. He then had a report of a home invasion with three robbers who specifically broke in thinking it was his home. The occupants said the rapper had moved and they didn't know where he had moved to. So he was safe from harm in that one. But Wow, but barely. Yeah, but they were out to get him. He also said his beautiful Rolls Royce was crashed in a serious car accident. But thankfully, he was able to walk away from it unhurt. But he is seriously freaked out that all this has happened to him after he saw the Dybbuk box. So they didn't open it or anything. He just saw yep. it. So since all this has happened, you know, um, the buying of these supposed haunted Dybbuk boxes are quickly becoming all the rage. You can buy them anywhere from like 50 bucks all the way to $1,000. If you want to see grown men shake and cry, it's great <laughs> fun to watch these YouTube videos. And my favorite so far is the YouTuber Jay Station. Uh -huh. who purchases several of these boxes and, of course, has lots of paranormal activity when he opens them. And I think, I think the real reason why he's especially haunted is because he insists on unsealing them at 3 a.m. <laughs> That's the witching hour, right? That's the witching hour. <laughs> Come on, Jay. You know better than that. <laughs> so, so let me get this straight. There, there are people out in the world who are getting Dybbuk's in there, drawing them into boxes. And then yeah. they're selling these boxes online. Yeah. And there are morons in our country who are like, that's a good idea. I'll go right. ahead and buy some. Yeah. And then I will open them all up and let the Dybbuk's just feast upon me, apparently, and let all this horrible shit happen. Right. And I'm going to provide links on our show credit so you can find these YouTube videos because they have some amazing footage. I mean, even a ghost like apparition appeared at the front door on their webcam while they were opening it there was like a refrigerator that opened on its own um and most of these boxes when they open them they have really spooky items in them like chicken feet or one box had like this jawbone pottery with ashes in them and articles of clothing i mean some of them even had like baby clothing in there or like photographs of people it's just crazy and a lot of these boxes they're covered in sigils and demonic symbols or even old Hebrew language. So it really seems legit. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, there's a lot of fake ones out there too online, but you just don't know what you're going to get. And some ghost experts, what they do is before they open it, they test out the Dybbuk box with those EMF readers. Yeah. So they can show if there's a spirit living inside. They have all these helpful tips to recommend that if you do buy them, make sure that you're buying it with some sort of backstory or background so you know it's tied to a real human. And uh, I've seen a lot of these Dipic boxes, you know, um, protected with like red wax or purple wax. But what you really should do, I'm not saying you should buy them at all, but if you do, buy one that has white wax because white is the color of protection. Oh. And it actually forms a better barrier than other colors of wax. Are these and boxes all coming from the same country? 
Oh, they're coming from all over the world. I mean, it's wow. just becoming this phenomenon wow. where everybody's getting in on it because it's a way to make money, right? Yeah. So yeah. YouTubers are making money because they're opening these boxes. It, it interests oh people. They're showing all this stuff happening. And then people online are making them. Um, probably they're putting spells on them because I don't think most people know how to even capture a Dybbuk. I think that's very rare. <laughs> yeah. So I think what they're getting is worse. I don't think they're getting a divic. I think they're getting a demon. Oh God. Like, I mean, they're attracting evil into their home. So there's a horror film called The Possession. It was an embellished version of this whole divic story that has been going on with, um, you know, that particular one that came from Havala. Uh -huh. And it is said that during the filming, this huge storage warehouse where they keep all their props was burned down to the ground. So the whole cast got really scared. Yeah. When they were offered the box to be used as inspiration on the film. They were like, no way. We're not even going to, we don't even want to see pictures of it. We yeah. want to like live after this movie. So they wow. were just so freaked up. This is really messed up, Holly. Some have reported seeing now similar boxes in basements or attics left behind when they purchase a new home. Oh my God. Isn't that just cruel? That's just really fucked up. I guess yeah. I won't be buying a new house anytime yeah. soon because Wait. I do not want to have to find something like that. Way to leave a nice home warming gift for someone. <laughs> yeah. It's like, fuck you. Here's a Dybbuk. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah. Have fun with my new home. That's your Thanks new for, home. Thanks for talking me down under asking price. Here's a Dybbuk. Here's a Dybbuk box for you. <laughs> so rude. Some buyers say, though, that the boxes have actually reversed their fortunes and brought misfortune on their enemies. Oh. Of course, these aren't reports coming from people who actually open the box, but at least have possessed one. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, I wonder if it works like a double negative. Like if your life is just going terrible and you get a Dybbuk box, the double negative reverses and now your life is just positive. Yeah, I know. I was wondering if there's ever been a, a Dybbuk that's brought somebody good luck. But, it did. Um, yeah. yeah, there's been yeah there's been reports that things turned around for the people Yeah, when huh. that happened. So huh. interesting. So my advice is if you want a paranormal surprise, just avoid the deep web. Go for a nice mystery box on <laughs> Etsy. You know, keep it safe. Oh, my gosh. That's so good. So scary. You can even get a Harry Potter themed mystery box. Oh boy! Really try a Harry it, Potter Dybbuk. <laughs> no, no, it'll be filled with charms, wands, a dragon egg bath bomb, even earwax jelly beans, and at worst, you might get a Bogart, but definitely not a Dybbuk. They would place amulets on the body for protection, and they would write prayers on the linen strips. Amulets or amulets? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, amulets, I believe, God, amulets. God damn, yeah. God damn you guys. Okay, so they would place amulets on the body for protection, and they would write prayers on the linens. Did I do it wrong? Yeah. I was just wondering, like, what kind of amulets? Oh, God damn it. I didn't research that part. Like, <laughs> or Probably or... cool, like, necklaces and maybe little rocks. I don't know. Something neat. Once the mummy and the tomb were ready, they would perform. No, but that's how you say it. No, once the once it was ready, and I. But what's wrong with ready? <laughs> that's how I say that word. <laughs> 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 you guys. Once the mummy and the tomb were 
ready. Ready. <laughs> God damn it. Once the mummy and the tomb were ready, they would perform the funeral. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> I'm so self-conscious. Oh my God. During the funeral, the priest would conduct a ceremony called opening of the mouth, which meant that the priest would touch the mummy in a certain place in order to activate that part of the mummy for oh his my life. Oh my God. In the afterlife. I'm Shut sorry. Up. Where, Shut where up. my Shut mind up. is going right now. I wrote it specifically <laughs> like that. So you could make a joke about it. <laughs> During the funeral, the priest would conduct a ceremony called opening of the mouth, which meant, <laughs> I can't even do it. It's, okay, let's just bypass this whole part. Which meant that the priest would touch the mummy. <laughs> I can't do it. When the priest would touch the mummy's mouth, it could speak and eat in the afterlife. Shut up and do other things with its mouth. The, <laughs> Well, I she thought... doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this is a crazy episode already. That was one of the darkest things I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> this is the story of Ava Peron. 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 <laughs> this is a story. God damn it. It had received injuries such as a blunt force trauma to her face and feet. <clears throat> Somebody dropped her. <laughs> oh, I think so. I think they probably did. Oh, shit. Carol, can you retake the line? Uh, I, I think you said uh, museum a little oddly. I always say museum a little oddly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As the flames die down, do remain undaunted. Though all hitchhikers are ghosts and all dolls are definitely haunted. Hey guys, be sure to follow us on Instagram. Our handle is at Fireside Phantoms. If you have a spooky story you would like to share with us, send it to firesidephantoms at gmail.com and you may hear it on a future episode.